Welcome back to another episode of the Bearcat Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Meacham, former UC basketball player from 1997 to 1999 under the legendary coach, my man, Bob Huggins. And I was fortunate enough to wear the iconic Jordan brand unis during my time. Now, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alex underscore Meacham. Meacham spelled M-E-A-C-H-A-M. I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn, Alex Meacham. I'm on Snapchat, at Big Meach 41, and soon to be on TikTok. That's right. Now, this is the special edition of the podcast, my interview series with a very special guest. All right, Bearcat fans, I'm excited to welcome in this Bearcat legend. He played for the Bearcats from 1984 to 1988, currently ranks number six all-time leading scorer in Bearcats history. He is in the UC Hall of Fame, received his degree in engineering while playing basketball. Such a well-rounded dude, and I'm so excited for this new generation of fans to hear this guy's story because he is one of the greatest to ever wear the red and black. I'd like to welcome in my guy, number 21, Roger McClendon. What's going on, Roger? Hey, Meech, Alex. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. You know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and, you know, it's it's an honor to speak from one Bearcat to another. So thanks you for having me on your show. No problem. And, and, And I have to, and I've told you this before, but I think it's important for the Bearcat fans to hear this. So when I was a young kid growing up, I was around eight years old, and, you know, I was shooting in the backyard. My my first Bearcat basketball idol was Roger McClendon. And I used to shoot in the backyard thinking I was you. And you are one of the reasons that I wanted to play basketball for the Bearcats. And my, my father used to take me to games at Riverfront Coliseum, and I'd watch you, and I said, that's the guy right there that I want to be like. I appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you, who I think of as a basketball junkie watching, you know, kind of your your career and, you know, reading your book, Walk of a Lifetime, you know, how much passion you had for the game. But I also have to give a shout-out to, to your parents who supported me, um, you know, when I was going through University of Cincinnati, helping us out, you know, always somebody you could talk to. So you got great parents. You got a great family. Uh, and again, it's a privilege to be uh, a part of the Bearcat tradition. Yes, sir. Now, one of the things we're going to dive into, not only your basketball career, but I think your transition from basketball to business. And as I look back in history, there have been some players, athletes that I think have done a tremendous job of transitioning from basketball to business. Uh, one of the guys that I look at and I put at a, at a high level is Magic Johnson. Um, Magic Johnson has done such a tremendous job of that transition because it's not always easy for athletes to transition into business. Um, I think you're you're up there on that level, just your transition and, and how you approached business. And I want to dive into that, but I think more importantly is your your role as a father and your children. And we're going to talk about your success on the basketball court but your success after basketball with your kids and business is, in my opinion, far exceeds your basketball. And you're in the Hall of Fame for basketball, so um, you're definitely in the Hall of Fame for life. Can you quickly tell everybody about your kids and what they're doing? 
Yeah, no, it's it's a privilege. I, I have this motto that I kind of came up with through, throughout my journey. Uh, and, again, I think the influence is through those who you, you learn and meet and grow uh, as you go through your journey of life. And one of the things that I've kind of coined, as, and it's a, it's a corny engineering kind of terminology, it's called F squared, C squared. Mm-hmm. And it's faith, family, which makes up the F squared, community, career. Um, and so those things are most important. It's kind of how I live my life or try to live my life and the values um, that I've learned from my parents and others that have been important influence in my life to put those things in priority. So, so you're right, Alex. I, I, I came, came into UC not just thinking, you know, how can I get to the NBA? Not that I wouldn't mind playing in the NBA and not that it wasn't a goal, but my primary goal was an education. Uh, and it, it was a driver for me to make sure that that was utmost importance. And I couldn't let anything get in the way of that, it, including trying to split my duties between being an engineer uh, off the court and being, you know, the best basketball player I could be on the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Cincinnati allowed me to have that opportunity to do that. You know, one of the best universities in engineering, the founder in 1906, through Herman the Dean, Herman Schneider, came up with a cooperative program that University of Louisville and others have emulated and copied that cooperative program. Uh, and it was one of the major reasons, uh, components that I decided to choose UC. Mm. Man, you said you said some great stuff right there. It, so, so quickly, t- your kids. Tell us what your yeah. kids are doing. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've married my sweetheart, my college sweetheart, who's one of the four most influential people in my life, and that was Suzanne Edwards at the time, who was a graduate at, at the business school at, at the University of, of Cincinnati. And we have four beautiful kids. Um, you know, moved when we were when we were young. Actually, the kids. I just had Deja and Maya. To my two girls in Cincinnati, and we ended up moving from Cincinnati to Louisville and started uh, my career in Louisville, and then I had two boys here, so I've got four kids, um, and Deja being the oldest kind of set set the tempo and, and set the bar for everybody else, and she, you know, excelled in this environment in Louisville around volleyball. Um, it's got an unbelievable tradition, and so she had an outstanding career in high school, was a, a Under Armour All-American, and really got a lot of the foundation of fundamentals here and there, kind of what they call the AAU or club system of volleyball. And her, her sister kind of preceded her and followed in her footsteps and also became an All-American. Uh, they both went on to play college volleyball. Uh, Deja uh, played at Penn State and, and went to three Final Fours, you know, um, won two national championships on bookends our freshman and, and senior year, and just – really went to, like I call it, the John Wooden of, of volleyball, a coach by the name of Russ Rose. Uh, and Russ, along with one other coach, you know, and this this will come back in my story, you know, took one look, you know, at, at Deja and said, you know, early on when she was 13, Rexa Karma, who was the tennis coach because she played tennis as well, and said, you know, she just has to decide which sport she wants to become an All-American. So that wasn't my opinion, and I try to be <laughs> humble, and I know it's my daughter and my family. But I try to take the very objective approach and kind of let the coaches do their thing, uh, and then I'm just in the background with you know my wife's kind of supporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but they recognized she had you know exceptional talent and was gifted, and the Louisville coaching and the environment and the community brought that out of her. And then at the college level, you know Penn State went on to win 109, I believe it was 109 games in a row. They actually had the record 
Uh, wow. They didn't get much yet. They didn't get much credit for it. They won four national championships in a row, and, and Deja was on the fourth national championship team as a freshman. And she was uh, she was freshman player of the year, Big Ten and NCAA volleyball, and actually an MOP of that two, 2010 championship game in Kansas City. Uh, and they won it all as a freshman with, you know, a great team and a great coaching staff. So, um, and I, I can go on and on about the accolades. You know, she's been playing pro for the last six years, um, and it's just been, you know, a beast <laughs> off the, uh, you know, on the court and then just the nicest person and focused on communications and um, broadcasting, journalism, you know, off, you mm. know, off the court. So she set the bar. For the she set the bar, man. She set the bar. It was, and it was hard for the other kids. It was, it was a challenge. And also, you know, like you know, it's always a struggle trying to follow follow those kind of uh, accolades because you don't really want to compare yourself because that's the most challenging thing. You just want to get the most out of yourself and what, what you are as a player. But it definitely set a challenge for a younger sister, uh, Maya. And, and Maya stepped up big time, in, in my opinion, to the challenge. Um, if I may be allowed to talk about her, and this is uncomfortable for me, I want the, the fans to know I don't share my personal business. I don't. I really don't talk a lot um, unless people ask like this and to kind of get get it out there. But I, this is a chance to kind of to, to share the story. So Maya um, excelled in in every sport you know she played, whether it was uh, um, field hockey, um, gymnastics, um, and then she just grew you know and, and couldn't do gymnastics, so it broke our heart. Uh, and I remember the gymnastics coach saying, you know, this 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 person, she's so driven. Uh, she works, you know, five, six hours a day. Uh, she can really be something. But gymnastics is not going to be her sport because she's going to be just too tall. Um, and so, you know, so that crushed her. But then she shifted her gears and decided to, to start following her sister in volleyball. She ended up becoming uh, under All-American. All she she set you know unbelievable records at the AAU level. Um, she was a four a four if you can be this five six time AAU All American. When you go down to Florida uh, uh-huh. and you have the AAU tournament, her, since yep. stepping on the court as a twelve year old, she was All American all the way up till she graduated uh-huh. uh, in the AAU circuit. And they always competed for the national championship. Um, so she she was eaten up with it as far as trying to compete. And then she went to Louisville. Um, became uh, freshman player of the year in the AAC, uh, led the team to conference title along with uh, Patrick Ewing's daughter, Randy Ewing, was on the team that year. Um, and it was it was fantastic to watch, you know, in, in the KFC Yum Center, believe it or not, uh, yeah. watching yeah. all the activities, yeah. And so she went on and she had a decision very similar to mine, which I'm really proud of her, and then I'll talk about my two boys, where at the end of her career she ended up transferring her junior year going to play on the Pac-12 following her dream of academics. She really wanted to go into naturopathic medicine and focus in on that and didn't see that Louisville had the, had that curriculum and that field that was really important to her. So she ended up choosing academics over athletics, transferring, um, being able to play and competed at the Pac-12, which you know in volleyball, if you follow it, is Big Ten is probably like the toughest conference, and the Pac-12 is right there. But they trade each off. Mm-hmm. You know, last couple of years, Stanford has won it. You know, um, back in the day with Deja, you know, uh, Penn State had won. You know, five in the last you know seven years, and so you get that battle. So she went to the biggest stage that you can go on and competed at that level, unbelievably. Graduated, decided not to chase the dream like her sister and go on a pro circuit. 
decided to go to focus in on graduate school and chase her dream of naturopathic medicine. So that's what she's doing. Mm. Man, we could probably do a podcast on your kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, let, me, let me step out of the way. I'll put you in touch with them directly. Because you say, oh, man, they're unbelievable. So my, my son, Marcus, you know, is outstanding. Very proud of him. You know, he had a really good high school career, had opportunities. You know, we looked really strongly at NKU, now the coaches at UC. And, uh-huh. you know, he had just had a knee issue where he was born with an issue where the, the cartilage in his knee um, didn't really form or something didn't form properly with one of the bones there. And he just had to play with a lot of pain. Uh, and it was kind of like overwork, you know, he'd have to rest. And so he just, he wanted to do it. He pushed himself. He, he looked at it and then kind of backed off and said, Dad, I'm just going to focus on academics. And so he's in his senior year now working in information technology, computer science, with a minor in African-American history and philosophy uh, at North uh, at NKU. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's finishing up strong. And so he's got uh, aspirations to go to grad school, uh, plays music. I hear him strumming on the guitar now that we're in this COVID-19 <laughs> right. period. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> You know, right. doing his thing. So he's very—he's a very talented guy and, and very committed to to his uh, studies. Um, and so that rounds it out to the last—you know—the the baby of the family is Jordan, Jordan McClendon, and they, the kids named him, believe it or not. So we were all wait, watching, you know, the, um, the the show with Patrick Ewing and, and Michael Jordan. Um, I'm trying to think of it. You probably know it, Alex. Um, Space Jam. Mm-hmm. So, so they were all enamored with Space Jam. So they they ended up naming you know our our fourth child as Jordan. So we named okay. him Michael. But but like the that. the guy can can three sixty out of the gym. I mean he's he's played football in high school. Just unbelievably talented. And again you know had a scholarship. You know played uh was going to play at Hanover and then asthma kind of kind of took on its effect, you know, down in that area. And he just said that again, you know, it's kind of bothering me. I don't think I can really be the best I can be. I'm just going to focus on on engineering. And so that's what he's doing. So he transferred from Hanover, decided to focus in on engineering, and now he's in his second year there. So, you know, wow, those those are the guys. Like I said, man, such an accomplished uh, accomplished family. and, And you've done a great job, you know, with your children. And this is all going to – I'm glad you broke that down because this is all going to tie in at the end um, with something I want to bring up in your transition from basketball to to business and a a family man. But let's go through your history, Roger. Okay. Let's take it it back to Champaign, Illinois, Centennial High School. What type of high school basketball player was Roger McClendon? Oh, man, I I was – I, I was I was kind of an image of my coach because I got to think about two things, two traits that I kind of have, and and there is a blessing and a curse to have these two traits, and you probably you probably know. Uh, one is I'm never satisfied. I mm-hmm. don't know why. I'm just I mean I can make 19 out of 20, and I'm not happy with that. I'm thinking <laughs> about it like why did I make 20 out of 20? And then I'm I'm probably my own worst critic. You know I kind of go back and play every play you know, every second, and it's kind of say, man, I, I'm just not good enough, you know. And, and so right. those two traits have kind of been a driver. Um, and it, it, you can kind of separate when you think about a player and his character, like how did that develop? You know, what motivates somebody? What gives them the drive? And so that kind of comes back from my history growing up, and I'll share, and I typically don't share. So I grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, um, and 
and it was it I, I, my mom you know had me when she was young uh you know never had a dad really growing up so i'm i'm originally roger carter not roger mcquinton and i was adopted uh kind of saved my life and that that's another person that was most critical in my life is my mom so mm. through her hard work and and everything that she provided being the one, you know, the oldest of eight, and her her father, my grandfather, passing away when she was twenty, and her mom passing away when she she was twelve. She was actually raising seven brothers and sisters. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. And so when I came along, I became like a connection to this extended family, her extended family, because I'm only um, three years younger than her youngest brother when you look at the lineage. And so, and so as she moved on to get her high school diploma and, and kind of work, she got an opportunity to go to Job Corps and ended up with a job in, in, in New York, Upper State New York. And I was still hanging out with the brothers, her brothers and sisters with her, her uncle who was raising the family and mm-hmm. her dad at the time. And so um, they, basically, I'll tell you a story. So I, I can remember this like, I, like it was yesterday. And I was probably three years old, maybe pushing four years old. And I don't remember if you remember the Coke or the, the Pepsi and, and the glass bottles. You remember those? Mm-hmm. Back oh, yeah. It might be before your time. No, so no, no. Little, I remember that. Ones. Okay, so they're little ones. So they would crack one of those open. And you remember if you tried to drink them straight, how that would burn your throat? Like, So they had me drinking Coke straight. They had me jumping off roofs. And they had me rough and tumble. So they, they made me like the tough, tough guy that right. I thought I was, right? So that I think that's growing up, and I just wanted to kind of share that as a backdrop. And then I recognized they were all athletic. They were all super fast. Like my uncle mm-hmm. Scampi, I mean, he ran down a rabbit and gave me a, a rabbit called Happy, you know, and I was my pet, you know. And, mm. and so all my uncles were very good. In fact, my, my great uncle, Uncle George Carter, was a baseball player. He played semi-pro uh, as he was in and out of, 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 you know, World War II along with my grandfather. So, so he was the one that really got introduced me to sports when I was very young, and bought me the baseball glove. The first, my first love in sport was baseball. Got me a baseball glove, and it was a pitcher's mitt actually. Uh, I mean, a catcher. Yeah, it was a first baseman's mitt. Um, and so he he kind of got me into the sport. My first love was baseball. I, I fell in love at being in New York with, ironically, the Cincinnati Reds, the big red mm-hmm. machine. And so didn't know where Cincinnati was. And and so that was kind of my journey coming up, you know, as a young kid, that was my drive was to really try to make it in any sport, whether it was baseball, football, golf, I don't care, whatever sport that was going to pay to help us get out of this, you know, economic situation and help my family, that was my driver. Uh, and then the second thing happened in New York before I get to Champaign is that my mom met my dad. And I call him my dad because his whole family adopted me. It was his grandmother, his, his I mean, his his father, his mother, his aunt. Um, and they had a horrific accident that when I first met them had just occurred, and I never met his brother, Pierre, who I heard was like, looked like me to a certain extent, but had, you know, a killer instinct in sports too, was a boxer and, you know, trained. Uh, and so I think, you know, his mom, my dad's mom kind of fell in love with me, maybe as a replacement, you know, I look back at it, and you know, as I think back at it in the past, and but they just adopted me wholesale, no questions asked. I never felt like I was not part of that family the very first day I met them. So, so the thing that brought t- 
to like being in, in, engaged with with him is that I had to change my name, and I was I would really love my Carter background, working rough and tumble with all this history in West Virginia, which is tied into the Moss family, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Randy Moss and that family, I'll come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so I came I came out of that, you know, going from New York, you know, playing baseball, being named, you know. Um, Hoover was my nickname, played shortstop, and I was a pitcher. And, you know, one story I'll tell you was uh, the first time I really saw some poverty, we, we got an invitation to go to watch the New York Nike. So a bus came, pulled up, you know, um, I was running late, and the alarm didn't go off. Um, somebody knocked on my door, and it was an embarrassing moment because I had to rush out the door, you know, grab the last $5 my mom had, jump on the bus with my cousin, and we went up to watch a Yankees event. Got off the bus, was going to the old Yankee Stadium, and I'm looking, and I'm, you know, my nose is reacting to the smells that you see, and and literally, you know, what you would call a bum, which is just a homeless person, you know, that didn't have anything. He's picking out of the garbage can, drinking, you know, the remnants of a beer that's left in the bottom of a cup. And just my eyes, that's the first time I saw the city, a big city, first time I experienced something like that, and I recognized how how tough every other people have it. And so I, I kind of committed to, to make a difference at that point for my whole family, and sports was going to be my way out. Mm-hmm. So the con- conjunction of working with, you know, my dad, who was not my dad, and kind of going through that transition of being adopted kind of being the man of the house with my mom for since I was like four years old all the way to about 13. That was about 12 or so, 12 years old. What he did for me in New York before we made that transition was he saw my talent. He, he never told me this, but he told my mom, and I learned later, he said, you know, Roger has the ability to become an All-American in whatever sport he chooses. Mm-hmm. And so he started to cultivate that talent. He started to take me to campus. And as a seventh and eighth grader, I was playing, you know, with college players and playing with his guys um, competitively. Like, you know, let's make this happen. You know what I mean? Like like they had to play hard to just not be embarrassed by a 13-year-old or 12-year-old. And, and so that kind of started my journey um, of him recognizing it. And the other thing that I learned was, being a critical thinker and how valuable education was, like to read more sources, to go beyond what was taught in the classroom, because the, our history as an African-American was not really there, and not necessarily everything was not being told in the history books. So the, mm-hmm. the, the access to the library, I learned so much more than all my peers who were just taking things in like a parrot. You know, I was asking questions. You know, I, I kind of got a, a glimpse of what else was out there. It was this very big world, and whose history was I actually reading? Like, who wrote the book? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Where were their sources? So I was getting all that around 12 and 13, which really accelerated my growth. So he got a job at the University of Illinois. Uh, he scoped it out. You know, um, he found two schools, but he found a coach that was unbelievable. He found a guy by the name of Coleman Caradine who was coaching um, and teaching at Centennial High, Champaign Centennial High School. Mm-hmm. And that by far was the biggest difference. And he was the four, fourth person, no, the third person in my life. So my mom, my dad, and Coach Caradine were the three most influential people in my life. And when he found Coach Caradine, he knew that was the right school. Um, both schools had pretty good education. Both schools had good faculty. But the difference maker was this coach. 
Uh, and I'm, let me tell you about his background. So I'm now moving from New York, you know, leaving all my friends, and I'm preparing that summer before. So I know I've heard all about Chicago basketball, right? So I know I got to come in there because I'm thinking Champagne is Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, so, so I'm doing double sessions. I'm getting out with the rope, you know. I'm doing all kinds of, you know, training. You know, I'm, I'm making sure I can, you know, my game is going to be tight because I've got the best of the best in the country that I'm going to be competing against. And so I prep myself. So I get to Champagne, and this coach that 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 he meets is a small college All-American. He scores over 2,100 points in his college career. He is a four-sport, four-year letterman. He has 16 high school varsity letters at Mount Vernon High School. Mm-hmm. He proceeds to be the leading, the number leading scorer in Western uh, uh, Illinois University. Um, and literally, when when he sees me play, he has me come in the summer before I start my high school at Champaign, and you know meets my dad. And says, okay, he needs to play in a, in a summer league. We have this summer league to play, and so he, he's up in the stands watching me, you know. And I'm having, I'm playing, I'm ready because I've been training, right? I'm blocking shots, I'm getting steals, I'm seeing the open floor, I'm hitting the jump shot at the buzzer, and you know, again, he proceeds to go in the in the stands and tell my father, unbeknownst to me, he said, he just needs to know what sport he wants to be an All-American in. Hello. So that yeah, you still with me, Alex? Yep. Yep. Okay. I'm here. So so I, I so 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 that's the the story. I'm 13 years old, getting ready to start my high school, my freshman year, and you know, unbelievable land in this place, you know, where University of Illinois, Big Ten, you know, and then this high school coach who's an All-American that's going to teach me everything he knows to how to play the game, and and that just changes my life. You know, it really changes my life. So that freshman year. I go out for the team. I'm not very conditioned. I haven't learned how to condition. Um, and, I, I mean, they lay it on me. You know, he's, he's like, this is you're going to be the best in shape. Everybody is, and you can't make the team. And, you know, we lose a lot of great athletes, you know, with potential that don't have the discipline and don't have the routine to actually make the team, right, that can't stick in with the structure that's provided and they just don't have the discipline and the commitment. And so they might be – even more talented than I was, but they weren't able to stick it out. And so, you know, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I didn't have that problem. So I kind of followed the the, the path and, and and got myself in shape. And then I came in that freshman year and and made varsity. But what before? But how I did it? I'm going to share some things. So number one, what the coach did was he opened up the gym right before school started, so that I could work on some moves that he showed me. And he would show me, just like John Wooden showed you how to tie your shoes, he showed me how to hold the ball where the laces should be. He showed me or uh, where the ridges should be. He showed me, you know, how to the footwork, you know, how to dribble left and plant inside foot, square, 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 go up. Same thing on the left, same thing on the right, Um, pump fakes. So all these things he had me working an hour before school started, and then we used the PE period I had until the administrators said he, he couldn't do it uh-huh. to work on those drills one-on-one. And I just did it by myself. I had a basketball and I, I'd work up a sweat. I brought an extra set of clothes, you know, two sets of clothes so I could do that every day, twice a day. Um, because I loved it. I was falling in love with it. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to get better. I wanted to know what was going to make me make a difference. And so I just bought in a hundred percent. 
So had now, did, a, you, had did you did you yeah. play did you play varsity all four years? Yes, I did. I did. I didn't break into the starting lineup uh, until what what happened was I, I I broke my thumb. So I was playing. So he had me playing, which is probably not not allowed today. I was playing on the freshman team. I was playing on the sophomore team. I was playing on the JV team, and I was playing on the varsity team. And so that first kind of part of the year, I was getting all that experience, and then I ended up breaking my thumb and being held out toward, like, the first quarter of the year um, and then came back probably by mid to the last part of the year and played the last, you know, just varsity probably the last, i say, 10 to 15 games. And so I got, yeah, and, and so, yeah, so that's how, how it went. But the, all those games, you know, kind of gave me that game experience and then got me to that to that varsity level. And, and, and Roger, obviously you had a tremendous high school career and you eventually were named a McDonald's All-American. So in order to be a McDonald's All-American, I mean, what do you have to do in high school? Like what were your, you know, your statistics? You obviously have to play at a high level to make yeah. the McDonald's All-American game. Yeah, my, the way I made the McDonald's All-American is just what I just told you was individual skill. So it's two things. It's method and skills that come with method and execution of that method, and it's intentionality, which is your mindset. And so in order to be a McDonald's All-American, a couple things happened. Um, one is I played at the, I played against some of the toughest players in, in the state. So Kevin Gamble, who went on and played – for the Boston Celtics, played for Springfield Lanphier. Um, you know, we had guys come in from Chicago, Chicago Corliss come in. Um, so we started playing, you know, some of the toughest competition, and I was performing at a high level. So my stats, you know, probably 56, 57% from the field, you know, being able to go coast to coast and dunk the basketball or shoot, you know, shoot, shoot what we call three-pointers now or drive, you know, to the lane, you know, because you didn't have three pointers back then. We we didn't, but the range is what I'm saying. So I was mm-hmm. probably shooting comfortably at that range. And and you know we had a couple of secret weapons. I had a I had a, a player that played point guard. His name was Scott Nagy, and his father was Dick Nagy, who was an assistant coach with Lou Henson at the University of Illinois. Mm-hmm. And so I got some insights on you know I didn't really start lifting weights, and you know never could tell I even tried to lift the weight based mm-hmm. on my body type. But but he we started working out together. You know we started doing you know um, you know the squats that you needed and trying to get that endurance built up. But what really got me to the so having all those skill sets and then finally demonstrating those in five camps when I was a sophomore uh, and then a junior. And those camps were you know Bolton and Croner, the BC camps. And I don't know if you remember those in Rensselaer, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, they had the Nike. Uh, had I think it was AFB All American Camp was the following year, but I went to I went to five camps, kind of like that sophomore year when I was kind of elevating myself, and that really got me got me on the map. It was highly recommended by you know Coach Nagy and then you know Coach Caradine said here here's the camps. But the thing about it, I'll tell you, we didn't really have the dollars to do it, even though you know my dad was working. It was really we really still struggled, and I remember him driving me to um, to Garfinkel's camp up in in uh, Pennsylvania. And I didn't find this out till later either. He literally, my dad literally slept in the car for the four or five days I was at the camp. Oh, wow. 
and he just used the bus station and, you know, used their shower to wash up and change clothes. And he, and that's kind of lifestyle. He, he would choose to, instead of eat a meal or get something luxury, he would buy a book when he was in college. Um, you know, he would wear shoes with holes in them and put tape on the bottom and still buy books with his extra money. Hmm. Yeah, so he was he was one of those kind of guys and still is. See, I was the opposite. I was buying shoes and wasn't buying books. As <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, 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 so he sacrificed. So guys at that camp were like Winston Bennett. You remember him? He was one year ahead. Um, and then Del Ray Brooks. He was so I, I had to come in with no name. And by the time I left, you know, those camps, you know, from Bradley's camp to uh, University of Illinois' camp, team camp, and I'll tell a story there shortly, um, I had to make a name for myself. And that I wasn't intentionally, I was just going to compete. Uh, I knew what was on the, at stake, and I knew the sacrifices being made, um, you know, and, and, and even the gear that I had to get new tennis shoes, I mean, that, that was a struggle for us as a family. Um, yeah. So, so, so I knew I was. They were vested in me, and I was going to make sure we got a return on investment. So, at that camp, uh, Illinois camp, there was a team camp, and it was, it was Martin Luther King High School had come down, and Sonny Cox was the coach. And you know, I don't know if you remember Sonny. You know, Ephraim Winters, and so that was a pipeline for the University of Illinois. He had a lot of great players come through that mm-hmm. program. And there was a team. We we had a team camp. So our guys, mostly majority, you know, white team. Um, and I was, I remember I was killing, I was shooting left-hand jump shots. I was finger rolling. I was doing, you know, everything in that camp. And they had a guard that was slashing our zone. And, you know, every time he would try to get through, our guys were too slow. So he, they would trip him up, you know, by accident trying to get Mm -hmm. to him. And he would end up, you know, getting beat up. And finally he got tripped hard, so hard that they had to carry him off the court. And this guy was a soldier. So he, he, he gave the word, and finally we didn't know, but I became a target for a hit. And, and our point guard, Scott Nagy, was a target as a hit. You know, he, he, put, the, he put the hit out on us mm-hmm. um, with these gangsters that he had on his team, but I won't call them Jeez. gangsters. They were just tough guys from Chicago. Right, right, right. And so what happened, it got so much noise around this situation that was going to explode uh, later in the day, that Coach Nagy, who uh, Dick Nagy, who was the assistant for Lou Henson at the University of Illinois, heard about it, and he's got this booming, like, strong voice. So he found out. He called everybody together. He he diffused it and then had us shake hands and, and do forgiveness, and that guy became my best friend later in life, which was Romel Shorter. Yep. Uh, and so that's that's how I met Romel was through, through that camp. Another um, one of my favorite Bearcats of all time. We'll, we'll talk yeah. about Romel a little bit later. Absolutely. So accommodation of last thing, and then I'll let you get back to the question. So by having that exposure, there was a, a person watching me at the BC camp, and I had a really good camp, and I wasn't on a very good team. Uh, and she kept telling her husband who she was there with, like, I like this guy. And, again, I learned this later being in Louisville. And she kept saying, this, "This you should go over in this court." And she and he proceeded to say, "You follow him, and then we'll find out." You know. And they finally met and watched me. And then Wade Houston and his wife were the ones recruiting me. But his wife is the one that started recruiting me first. Oh wow! <laughs> so yeah, so that's a small small story at the BC camp. Yeah, and and so listen, and I'm going to talk about the McDonald's All American game here in a second, but I do want to quickly go through that so we can jump into um, your, your career with the Bearcats because I know Bearcat fans really want to hear about that and some stories. But 
Um, you make the McDonald's All-American game, some players that were in there. Uh, Danny Manning, I believe he was on your team. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite guards growing up, too, David Rivers. He mm-hmm. was on the other team. He ended up going to Notre Dame. I loved watching David Rivers play. Um, now, this is crazy. You guys won the McDonald's All-American game, 131-106. to 106 high-scoring game. Um, just quickly tell us, you know, what that experience was like and, and playing in the McDonald's. Such a prestigious, and, and even more so, I think, back then. I think it's even more prestigious back then than it is today. Yeah, that was that was uh, the icing on the cake of my career. And, you know, I, I flew out there. My dad, you know, flew out there. Um, and, and and the neat thing was it was Polly Pavilion, and so the person that I got a chance to spend time with one on one was Coach John Wooden. Uh, oh wow! Never forget. Uh, and you know we spent that's history right there, Raj. Yeah, that's that's crazy. You know, and and it was at UCLA. I mean, where Mick Cronin mm-hmm. is now. You know, it was, and it was it was un, it was I didn't really understand the history at the time. I just kind of was taking everything in stride. Um, I wasn't a guy that would, you know, watch and, you know, necessarily other players and study and, and do a lot of research on current players. I did it historically, but not on current players. So I was just uh-huh. going in competing. And so the guys on the team, I hit it off with Danny. You know, we talk, we still know each other. I recently saw him in Louisville recruiting when he got the job at Wake Forest and we said hello. Um, and so those guys, you know, were unbelievable players in their own right. And so the, 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 the environment and the atmosphere was, was unbelievable. There were scouts there, you know, NBA scouts. There was um, a chance to go do some philanthropic work. So we worked with um, the McDonald's, uh, I think it was the, I can't remember the technical name, but it was the hospital and charity event that we kind of went and spent some time at the Ronald McDonald House. And, and mm, so we yep, had, yep. We, yeah, so it was, it was great and the competition because we had John Williams, and I'll tell you who was the star of the star. I mean, they couldn't stop this man. I mean, he he looked like magic. You know, he was six eight, six seven, could shoot the rock, could handle the rock, and until he got so big, the way they had him lift weights and everything, and kind of put him down low, I just thought he was going to be like a superstar guard. But mm-hmm. I think that his body's type, the body style, kind of held him back from being that. But when he was in high school. That year from Crenshaw, man, he he was a man amongst boys at the time. He he really he really stole the show. So I was just, now, I was part of the team, you know. Yeah. Now let me ask you this question, and I don't know if this is true, but I've always heard the rumor. I don't know if you can put this to rest, or maybe you don't even know. But is it true that Danny Manning was looking at UC at one time? Absolutely true. In fact, the inside scoop when I was you know finished kind of with my career, there was a gentleman that I met by the name of Ron Grinker, and, and Ron was actually a, a Bearcat. Uh, he was a mascot, you know, UC Bearcat mascot, so he went all the way back in the day. And wow. there was a relationship between, you know, uh, Danny Manning's father and, and him and, and Cincinnati, and, and I think it was the previous coach before the new coach got in, but they still considered Cincinnati. And I think when the coaching change, you know, I think it was, uh, if you can remember, Badger probably was the coach yeah. prior to. Yeah. I think there so might have been a pre- Yeah, I think it was a, maybe it's a previous relationship there. And, and with Ron being a, a, a friend, they, they actually, he was, Cincinnati was on the radar. Now, obviously, Kansas and the crater of basketball is hard to walk away from, but I think mm-hmm. they were at one point in the discussion. Yeah. I've always heard that, and I didn't know if it was, in fact, true. So 
Um, but yeah, I'm glad you glad you clarified that. But I mean, what an honor to play in the McDonald's All American game. And so, let's go through the recruiting process. Um, obviously, you're right there in Illinois' backyard, um, but you end up a Bearcat. So, just quickly name the schools that were recruiting you at that time, and then why you end up going to UC. Yeah, and I was blessed. I had almost every letter you can think of from Duke to UCLA. Any school you can name, I, I basically had a letter. Um, and so we had to, to narrow down. And, you know, my father and I, you know, went through a list of 25 questions that we created that says what's important to Roger and what really are my goals, um, not necessarily the coach's goals. Uh, and, and it wasn't just all about basketball. And, and so um, we had – you know, folks that dropped off the list. You know, Bobby Knight, you know, dropped off early because there was just so many constraints on what you could do as an individual, as a student, you know, uh-huh. that it just wasn't right, the right fit. Um, uh-huh. Rolly Massimino came to our house and had a conversation on a visit, and it almost turned into a fist fight between him and my dad on a philosophical <laughs> issue. <laughs> And Rowley was a, he was an intense guy, so yeah, yeah. Rowley, Rowley didn't take kindly to our philosophy of you know, can you wear facial hair or not? And, you know, what's the choice? You know, oh, and, and they were like, no, no, we don't allow facial hair. And, and it was like, well, what's facial hair have to do with your performance? And he, Rowley, obviously couldn't come up with something. He was just saying, no, it doesn't look neat. And my dad wore at that time wore a full beard. You know what I mean? So. It was uh-huh. like, um, so it came, it, it came, it was hot and heavy, but it, we, we, you know, we came out of there, everybody was okay. <laughs> so they dropped so, off the list. <laughs> yeah, so they dropped off the list. So the, the five came down to this, you know, it really came down to, you know, the engineering, you know, um, the engineering ac- academic, you know, kind of chops that, that this university had. So one of the schools was, was Georgia Tech. And and Georgia Tech had obviously Bobby Crimmins and, and you know Mark Price and, and Bruce Darrumple and um, you know if you can think about Spider Sally and they had an unbelievable engineering program and and that was one of my best visits you know um, huh. was was Georgia Tech going to Atlanta seeing you know how the city was growing um, they said it was like seven women to one one man there something some crazy. <laughs> <laughs> A good a good ratio. Some crazy stat. So it was, yeah. and I love Bobby Primus. I still love him today. I had I had a conversation maybe a couple three years back. You know, somehow got got ran into him or something, and he was still the same kind of individual. Um, so they were high on my list. University of Illinois, um, obviously right in my backyard. Lou Henson. You had players like Derek Harper and Bruce Douglas. You know, you had some real strong history. Of, of performance and, and a, a strong connection to Chicago again. So they uh-huh. were they were right there, and they had a great engineering program as well. Then you had Vanderbilt, you know, so narrowed down to my top five, and they had a, a C.M. Newton, uh, I think was the coach at the time. Yep. And, you know, they had a great engineering school. I think they didn't have a whole lot more than that, you know, from a basketball. They were still trying to build, but uh-huh. they had the engineering. And then um, University of Louisville was strong, you know, with Coach Crum who mm-hmm. was the understudy of Coach Wooden, and then you had Wade Houston, you know, which I talked about his wife, Alice, and they were they were great recruiters, you know. They had some great teams, um, and they had this rotation where they would bring in, you know, the two guards that kind of replaced the other two guards, and it was like a two-year difference between the two. Uh, and not that you couldn't play as a freshman, but you had to earn your right like you did anywhere. 
But, you know, it wasn't like they were stacking on top of each other. He had at least a system to try to figure out how to share that, that opportunity of leadership and playing time. So, you know, I, I loved their style, and, and they were really high on listening. And they had the speed school, which emulated University of Cincinnati's uh, program, engineering program. And then last you had the University of Cincinnati, who at the time kind of snuck in on the list, to tell you the truth. They weren't on my original list. Um, and the reason they snuck on the list was because Tony Yates left Illinois as their assistant coach and got the head coaching job at Cincinnati. Ah, there you go. Mm-hmm. There it is. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. so Tony, so Coach Yates was the original recruiter. I mean, he was yeah. the guy that was recruiting you. So when he goes and takes the job, I think he, he took over Badger's job, right? So he, mm-hmm. he comes in, um, takes that job, and your relationship you had with him prior kind of sealed the deal. They had the engineering school, everything. Checked all the boxes, right? It did. It did. And there was a slight thing, you know, and not we know in the history again, it was like, okay, you have, you know, an African-American coach trying to rebuild a program that had the history of Oscar. The city backdrop was there. You know, they had, the, you know, what you could do with your engineering degree after you finished. So they had every, they had it all. They checked all the boxes. And, and the thing about that too, Roger, is like, some of the boxes that you had to check aren't necessarily a lot of boxes that many student athletes don't have. Um, you mentioned a couple things. You talked about the engineering degree. You talked about after basketball. And I think sometimes athletes today do make that mistake when they factor in their decision to go to a school to play a sport. They don't factor in – I'm not saying all of them. Some of them don't factor in – the education piece, the major, and life after whatever sport they play. And I think that's why, um, I think as of last Monday, the transfer portal was at 525 kids wow. for basketball. Wow. And, now, and listen, I'm not saying that academics and all that were, were everything to do with it, but there's so many things you have to factor in during the recruiting process as a student athlete that makes you say this is the right fit for me all the way around. Yeah, I think we, and I agree with that. I think we have a tendency, especially the higher, you know, acclaimed you are to be really focused at NBA, you know, that NBA overseas, you know, and that's my money. And, but you, you, and you don't think the injury is going to happen to you or something's going to (laughs) happen. I think it's overweighted, you know, really have, have to really think about hedging, not giving up on how focused you need to be on that dream on the NBA, but you have to hedge your bet. You know, you really do. Yep. Now, hey, listen, I want to I want to get into your career here with the Bearcats team. Let's start with your first year, 1984, 1985. You guys are in the Metro, and that's a throwback right there. You guys are in the Metro League. Um, like you said, Coach Ace is your coach. You guys go 17 and four. Um, you're averaging 12.4 points a game, leading scorer on the team as a freshman. And, and just talking through some of the guys that were there to kind of jog the memory of Bearcat fans, Cedric Glover, Derek McMillan, Myron Hughes, Lamel Shorter, who, you know, you mentioned earlier. Um, talk about that transition from, you know, being a very, very high-level high school player to going to college where I think a lot of players struggle with that transition, especially the higher-level players. Um, it, they don't always transition well because – if you're a high-level high school player and you're going to college, well, everybody else was a high-level high school player. So you got to kind of fall in line. you got to find your role, mature into the position. But it seems that 
you slid in right away and mm-hmm. figured it out very quickly. Would you agree with that? I, I did, and, and I would say a couple things. You know, it, it, no matter what, most likely there is a transition, and, and maybe even especially back then from a physical perspective for me somewhat and just the learning and most primarily defense, you know, and we ran a one, two, two uh, press with Coleman Carradine and it it was great. You know, we got to the state semifinals, um, but it didn't teach me the man, the man kind of principles that I, that I really needed to know. Not, not that I didn't know them in my head, but instinctively, right. Instinctively Mm -hmm. how to play it. And so there's a lot of that uh, that you need to learn. And that's probably was early, early on um, that kept me out of the starting lineup for the first five or six games was probably that, just having, you know, that defensive instinct to kind of not turn your back, you know, not mm. not get lost, not not take your eye off the, the man and ball. Um, and, and, and that helped once I figured that out, you know, the, the other things kind of clicked in place, athleticism. In place, right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know what, what one thing, let me, let me rewind something. I, I think this is interesting. So, during that whole recruiting process um, to the Bearcats, was there at any point did you consider that um, in 1983, I believe it was 1983, UC had a stall ball game versus UK in which Tony Yates stalled stalled the uh, stalled the ball. Did that make you think like, uh, you know, I wonder how recruits at that time viewed that type of game and say, I don't know if I want to play for somebody that's going to do that. Yeah, that, that that's a hard one because, you know, really, like I said, they Cincinnati kind of came in later in the fold, and one of my concerns that I, I didn't put a lot of weight on was, was, the, was the history, right, was that they didn't have a great season. Um, yep. They didn't have, you know, a lot of claimed players but I was there for the challenge. So that, that, that's why it didn't bother me. It was like, I want to make a difference. You know, I understand you're not at the top of the ranks. I understand, you know, you have to try to do whatever you can to win, but I have the faith that you'll recruit and you'll build the program and that, you know, we're going to try to win a national championship. That was in my mind. That was in my mind. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause UC was three and 25 prior to you coming yeah. there and then, you know, obviously the change to 17-4 and four is the record with, with you there and being the leading scorer. Now, there are a couple games um, your first year that I want to talk about. So, so this is the first time Bearcat, obviously, the Crosstown shootout is that marquee game. It's circle you know, on the calendar every single year. I don't care who the Bearcats have on the schedule. The Xavier game is always one that everyone has circled. And for the first time you're experiencing this, you were part of a wild game. Um, obviously, a lot of people talk about the brawl that happened, um, you know, however many years ago when Xavier and UC had the brawl at Xavier. But you were in the game, correct, when Myron Hughes punched <laughs> A. Johnson? Yeah, I was in the game. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like, like we, at the time, it was like nobody saw it, so it didn't happen, you know. Right, right. <laughs> Until we had to watch the film, but so – so my, let me tell you about Myron Hughes. Myron was one person you want on your team. He was a battler. And, and Myron would not do anything unless he was provoked because he's, 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 he's tough on the court, but he's not that kind of player. He's, he's physical. Right. But I'm sure there was something there if we watched the whole game, you know, that he was a retaliation, I would say, you know, in my opinion. But not calling it right. Um, but, yeah, so his, his ability to kind of – do that and keep running like nothing happened was astounding because no, <laughs> nobody 
nobody really saw anything, and the game kept playing, right? Like, he fell down, right? So that was crazy. That was crazy. That <laughs> was a good I, – I, so I, I don't remember it when I was young. I was I just don't remember that uh, situation. But I've seen the video of it, and my, my dad has told me about it. He was like, no one saw it. He's like, no one at the time, like, really paid attention to it, right? No, it, it was, it, like, out of Myron, like, it's unbelievable. So, you know, you're right. It was the secret, like, punch, like like Muhammad Ali. Like, did he hit him or did he not? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But, but and, and listen, um, you guys had some other, you know, big-time games. Um, Louisville always, Louisville just became, you know, such a rival. Um, you beat Louisville twice that year. Um, Memphis always has, has been a rival. Um, Guess played at UK again. Um, some some big time games. Did any game stick out to you that year? Um, and a story behind the game? Yeah, that fr- you're talking about freshman year. That freshman year, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a couple of them. I, I definitely say you know in a good way and a bad way. So so beating Louisville, you know. Um, you know, and that storied program and how much respect you have for Coach Crum, you know, that was an unbelievable feeling. You know, that you had uh, Billy Thompson on that team. You you had Milt Wagner. So I remember mm. stealing the ball from Milt because he wasn't thinking that I was going to get up on him and, you know, make that quick move and steal it from him. And, you know, so I think they were like, who, you know, who is this team? Because they were 3-25 and 25 the year before. Like, we're not we supposed to come in and walk over these guys. And so I remember that vividly. I also remember being in Rupp Arena for the first time mm. and what it means to to be a, a wildcat, you know, on the blue mm-hmm. team, how much pressure and fan, you know, focus and how passionate and how tough it is to win in a place like that because, I mean, they probably scared the refs every time they, refs come in there, you know what I mean? <laughs> <Right>. yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. they, but they had a team to back it up. They had Kenny uh-huh. Skywalker. I mean, they had – they recruited McDonald's All Americans like it's you know nothing, right? And I I got a letter from UK. They you know, um, Coach Joe B. Howe, Joe B. Hall recruited me coming from a tournament that he was in Illinois. So I knew they had a strong team, but it was definitely definitely difficult to to win in there. They just had too much firepower. Yeah, they were just, they were just too bit too good. Okay, so listen, you 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 go in your first year, Roger, and you know, you helped turn around the program. Like I said before, you guys were prior to you getting there, you see was three and 25. You get there. Um, they go to 17 and 14. Um, you guys make the NIT, um, lose the Marquette that year, but m- making steps in the right direction. So going into your sophomore year, 1985 to 1986, uh, I want to talk about that season a little bit. Now the record isn't as good. 12 and 16, but um, your input offensively um, has gone up. You were at 12.4 the season before your freshman year. Now you're at 17 points a game, um, and you're the leading scorer. Do you take on a different role your sophomore year from a leadership standpoint? You know, obviously you're, you're you're scoring, but are you taking on a bigger vocal leadership at this point? Yeah, most definitely. And 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 what the stats kind of play out over time. I mean, the games, you know, you won and lost because what we had the year before, even though maybe wasn't as pronounced, was we had seniors, you know, at least four seniors that I can, that I'll name that really helped 
the team. You had uh, Mike, you had um, Myron Hughes, uh, you know, you had Derek McMillan, who's running the point. Um, mm-hmm. You had Tony Wilson, who was athletic and, you know, fast, who actually was a track guy and, and, and made it on the basketball team. And then you had a guy by the name of Doug Keckman that didn't play a lot, but was there teaching folks, right? Was there mm-hmm. and, and, and said, you know, I'm going to help the team win even if I'm not getting the minutes. And he helped me you know, help me work out, help me think about the game, help me, you know, so when you have a a sense of of senior leadership that really contribute to the overall outcome of the team, it makes a big difference. And so losing those seniors, now all of a sudden you didn't have the juniors that was able to step up. You had a really tough gap. And I think Mm -hmm. that showed in our overall, you know, record in in some of the close games uh, that we weren't really able to pull off. Uh, so even though my I got better individually, I think as a team we weren't as strong uh, as a team yet with with experience. Mm-hmm. And you guys didn't make the NCAA tournament that year, your second year. Um, you didn't play in the NIT that year, did you? No. Okay. So now I, w- I want to take that. Okay. So so take that season. Um, obviously, your input, your your 17 points a game, you're stepping that up, your leadership role. Um, you, you guys haven't made the tournament. Um, so what is now your mindset in the off season going into your junior season? And I'm sure in the back of your mind, you're like, I got to lead this team to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. The, the mindset is, you know, we have these, uh, this un, unbelievable recruiting class and, you know, I made note of it and it was like, you know, we have a chance to make, we're going to be young, but we have a chance to make a difference. Uh And what the, the, the horrific blow to that, you know, when I'm just thinking of basketball is that I think all five of them were proposition 48 because proposition 48 came into ideation in 1983, but was implemented in 1986 going into my junior year. So, so explain, so a lot of people don't know what that is because, that was still there my first year, but then it was gone. So explain to people what that means. So, so what happened was there was a rule on the books by the NCAA that said if you didn't carry a certain GPA uh, in high school and got a certain score on your ACT, kind of a sliding scale, then you were not eligible your freshman year to play. You could go to the school, but you couldn't play. And so we had Elnardo Givens, which was a great point guard. You know, we had yep. Luke. Banks, we had Lavertis Robinson, we had Keith Starks. You know, I, I think there's five guys, if I go back, maybe even six that we recruited that that impacted. And so now instead of, and we were, we were stuck. We couldn't like go recruit somebody else. So right. that diminished, I mean, that hurt the team morale. And then it hurt us physically by not having enough, you know, of that talent to kind of help spring us where we needed to go our junior year. So that was a little bit of a devastation for us and not in our control. And the other thing for me was school was getting harder. Uh. School was getting much harder. Uh, and teams were starting to focus on me. I, I mean, I, I started to have, you know, double teams and, you know, running certain sets and they knew our plays. And so we weren't really evolving. <laughs> we weren't, yeah. we yeah. weren't evolving like, like X was evolving. X was coming up and doing NBA camps and having NBA, you know, strategies and defense and offense. And I, I didn't really notice it until later in life as I look back on it, you know, analyzing what was really the evolution of that was happening. And we were still uh-huh. kind of set in a 
in a more traditional um, type of offense and defense, and it, it just kept caught up with us definitely by junior, senior year for sure. And, and, and so that junior year, you guys actually had an identical record. It was 12 and 16 as you did your sophomore year, but you, but once again, your average goes up. Now you're averaging t- about 20 points a game. Statistically, this is one of your best seasons, um, but, you know, the record doesn't indicate that. At any point, this is a question I have for almost every former player that I interview. At any point, or especially at this point, did you think of transferring? Because, and I want to lay it up like this, you had so many high-level schools recruiting you, and you're seeing them go play an NCAA tournament, and you guys aren't. Any point did that cross your mind? I, I got to be really honest. Uh, I, I definitely did, and it, and it happened really my sophomore year. Um, oh, okay. and Yeah, and, and, and the reason it, it did was, you know, you just kind of start to think about the, the vesting, you know, um, are we vested in really going toward greatness? You know, the the stadium that's promised that you're going to play in, which became the shoe, is not there, right? Some of the things Mm -hmm. that were told to you. But how I dealt with that, you know, and and obviously from my sophomore year to my my junior year, things are going well more individually but not team, was what I committed to, you know. And if that contract in my mind of what I committed to, not just to – the players on the team, like my best friend Romel and, and, and you know others, I, I'm here to to stick it out. Um, but you have to consider what if, you know, what if I go? Will I get more exposure? Because now the thing that I put on the back burner was, can I make it to the NBA? You know, begins to play in your mind, you know, because mm-hmm. that wasn't my first thing that I was focused on. But it's 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 almost like coming true, right? It's almost like you're you're being positioned now based on how you performed that people were talking about you in that way, um, you know, wasn't betting the, the farm on it, but it had happened. And so, yes, it, it did definitely uh, come to view going into that junior year for sure. Um, more, 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 more. Yeah. So, um, and listen, a lot, of, a lot of players go through that and they, they think about that process of is the grass greener on this side. And mm-hmm. You decided to, to stick it out. Um, stay with the Bearcats. So I want to talk about this senior year season, 1987, 19, 1988. <clears throat> um, excuse me. <clears throat> you guys are 11-17. and 17. Um, Now, you go from the year before averaging 20 points a game to your senior year, you're averaging 15 points a game. Cedric Glover's the leading scorer. Um, all these new guys are now acclimated. Lavertis Robinson, Lou Banks, Keith Starks. Um, talk a little bit about that transition. Yeah, that's probably the toughest time of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Toughest time of my life because I'm battling two fronts here. Um, I'm battling the front of trying to manage this tough engineering degree, which I don't wish on anybody um, to try to have to manage through it with at the same time trying to manage a senior year with all these new dynamics, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I'll talk about the engineering first. And so what I do, because I'm, I'm making the same decision going to my senior year, am, am I going to transfer or am I going to stick it out? And I go through a review of my own and go over to the University of College of Engineering and talk to the dean there and tell them my situation. I mean, to, to the heart, you know, from Dr. Osterbrock, who was a really great professor and 
you know, I struggled through a lot of his classes, as many people do. He was the weed out kind of class, you know, many times over. And I had an honest conversation. I said, I want to, I came here to be an engineer. That's what my first primary goal was. But I'm also here, you know, in, in the basketball season, which is tough. And I'm not, I have to make a choice here. I have to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And so by staying, and, and it took a long time, I, I prayed on it and I, and I came up with staying. And it had a lot to do with more emotional versus probably in, in, in the intelligence side. So what I negotiated with the, the College of Engineering was I was going to take a year off of taking my core engineering classes. I was going to go ahead and, and take some of the electives and things I needed, and they said that would be fine. I'd be able to come back in because it's a five-year program. It's a mandatory five-year engineering cooperative program. And so, and then, then I came back to, to the team and dealt with that next dynamic, which I had my studies under control. Here's my plan. Now, the team dynamic was now you get all these guys that were pinned up. Now, how are we going to really make a team? Mm-hmm. And that was the hardest part was mm. even as me being leader and, and, and trying to be leader by example, trying to get everybody to follow between myself and Cedric and Cedric coming to his own, the style of game we were trying to play, there was just no cohesiveness. Um, yeah. We had a lot of talent, you yep. know, and and that talent got developed, you know, later, years later. Um, but at that time it was just, very difficult to kind of have a team dynamic. Yeah. And another interesting thing too, from your junior to senior year, um, and I know this seems very, very minimal, but you guys went from playing in Riverfront Coliseum to the Cincinnati Gardens your last year. Yeah. Man. And I have so many memories. I I went to the games when they were at the Coliseum, but man, I have so many memories of going to the gardens and, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and watching you guys. So, I, I do remember that that was that transition to the gardens, and then eventually um, the shoe was built. Yeah. Now, now, did they promise? Did they promise while you were there that the shoe would be built? I, I, if I go back and look at my uh, the uh, brochure that I received, they had like hard hats on and a hole dug, um, you know, with people. <laughs> wow. With, 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 but I can recall, I think I saw an image of that and said, yeah, we're going to have a new stadium. You know, I, in the back of my mind, uh, I do remember something like that. And, and what you just called out was I felt like because I started my first game at Riverport Coliseum that that was home for us. Yeah. And to have to play Xavier being the home team but being in the in the gardens yeah. for a home game was the most one of the most painful experiences uh <laughs> That I can remember. So you, you brought me back to those memories that I've kind of, you know, buried in the back of my mind. <laughs> Sorry, my, my bad. <laughs> my bad. But it is real. You you overcome. You know, and and so we we did the best we could, but it definitely didn't feel like a home. Yeah. So your your last year, you guys did make the NCAA tournament. Um, you know, you did make it your entire career uh, while you were at UC. However. You know, just looking back at it, man, you you had an amazing career, and I mean, really, you know, you could look at the NCAA tournament stuff, but you you can't look back and 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 really look back and say, man, I I didn't have a great career, have any really things to look back bad upon, man. You you were one of your Hall of Famer, one of the greatest to ever play for the Bearcats. I appreciate that, Alex. It, mean, it mm-hmm. means a lot, and and the people that I met along the way. I mean, the history yeah. of the school, I mean, it's bigger than an individual, right? And I mean, 
my my circumstances you create you you create your own future you know you create what you know you go in and do what you need to do even under the circumstances do the best you can do yep. and i felt that's that's what i did and that that kind of gets me through because i i i did have high expectations of you know winning a national championship i did have high expectations of bringing it back where you know and coach did too and i, I mean every in his heart coach Yates and the old coaching staff had the same dreams and expectations. And so we just, we didn't get there, you know? Um, yeah. And so, yeah. So yeah, that, it, it kept that fire underneath me and I just had to, to, to figure out the next transition. And so we're, that's a great segue. That next, um, that, that next step, that next chapter for you in your life, um, quickly give us um, a breakdown of, of what's happened. So just quickly on the side, and I want to talk more about, business here in a second but um you, you know you're you're try at the professional level and then basically saying look i'm going to go into this to this business here so so i had to had to, had to think about what was going to happen because i had this year kind of a little bit hanging over me for a five-year program again you know come back up remember i took a little bit of time off a quarter or two kind of focusing on basketball my senior year, it didn't pay off, right? It, we did, it, it, it didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I was kind of a little bit behind there. And now I'm a senior, and so the question is, I'm past my eligibility, so to speak. But my contract verbally with the school and the schools that I was talking to was, if I was in a five-year engineering program, would you honor that fifth year? Because I can't graduate in four years, even if I tried the program yep. five years. So they mm-hmm. so they came back and, and granted that fifth year and I focused in on engineering. Now that was I had that in my back pocket. They they committed. They were going to f- stand by that. But here's the other thing I had. I had guaranteed offers to play overseas in Brazil, uh, in Spain, and mm-hmm. and I had uh, an NBA agent that said, Hey, won't you come and do the CBA? I'll help you develop, and we can get you into the NBA. You know, if you want to if you want to do that. Uh-huh. And so I had to toss and turn and sleep, you know, all night and think about what I was going to do with the next step. And I came to the conclusion, and here's where I made the decision, right? It had nothing to do with the coach and how we played, was probably the best bet was to start my professional career as an engineer, was to uh-huh. finish up school, what I, finish what I started, not leave it, finish it. And, and if it, that burning passion was there and some of these platforms probably would be closing or shutting down, I may still be able to open them back up after a year. And that's what I did. I poured everything I had and it was hard as, it was hard as heck. I poured mm-hmm. everything I had to get through that engineering program that last year in, in a couple of quarters. Yeah. And I did it. Yeah. And, and so, so talk and, and Raj, talk quickly about you and I have, um, built an incredible friendship over the years. I'm very appreciative of that, by the way. And um, <clears throat> talk about your involvement with uh, Young Brand. Yeah, it, it's mutual, Alex. You know, as as I was finishing up that degree, you know, what I didn't talk about through my my college career was in in the summers I was co-oping. You know, mm-hmm. I was a, I was a student athlete and I was playing basketball, but I had put two quarters back to back in spring summer to go do co-ops. And so those co-ops happened to take me around the world. I went to Ecuador and worked for um, Chiquita Brands, which was a lender, uh, a Carl Lender-owned company, and they were looking for young talent. And so I had a chance to do a three-month stint in Costa Rica 
and Ecuador. And so this was all, you know, way, way back when. I won't say how old I am, you know, know, many, many, a couple decades ago. We can do the math. Come on, Rod. We can do the math on this. (laughs) I was in countries where literally I was dropped off in the middle of jungle to figure out how to put in a plant and how to, you know, you know, adapt to the culture and perform. I was getting that all the way in college. And and, and that was, you know, part of the co-op program, which set me apart from many, many other folks when I was going for a job. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so my first job wasn't really with Young Brands. It was with um, a company called uh, Champion Paper, which is now part of International Paper, where it was right there in, in Hamilton, Ohio, was my first job. I, I My wife got a job with Procter & Gamble. She was my fiance at the time, ended up getting married. Um, and then I took that job at Champion to learn the hard ranks of what an engineer was going to be. Uh, and that was like programming. I was talking about algorithms and writing software programs to do AI way back then, Alex. I was yeah. doing, yeah, I was, I, was, I was doing AI to automate and run different processes along the manufacturing line to, to bring in efficiencies and consistency of delivered products. And, um, and, and learning the code and, and, and the GE, going to GE schools, you know, across the country to train on drives and, and motors and systems. And so that's what I jumped into, and I was loving it. You know, that's what I, I, I was trained to do. Mm. So then I finally got a call from a guy that I did the co-op from, and this is a funny story. So get a get a call. I'm working at Champion, doing my thing. I'm probably like three years in. You know, I kind of decided to let the basketball go. You know, I'm married, you know, focusing on, on, on my relationship, and I've, I've probably got Deja's getting ready to be born here anytime soon, and I get this phone call. And the guy says, hey, why don't you come take a look at KFC? And I said, Dave, you know, Dave Brewer was his name. I said, what's that? He said, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I almost started laughing on the phone, but I held back because I knew it was part of a PepsiCo property at the time. And I had much, much respect for PepsiCo and their marketing leadership, Mm -hmm. um, you know, their leadership development. uh, And they were a great growing company. So I said, hey, let me take a look at it. You know, he said, it's in Louisville. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll drive down and we'll we'll talk about it. And one thing led to another. I was able to impress, you know, a few of his boss and his boss's boss. They were really looking for a mechanical engineer, but I showed him my communication skills and that I love problem solving. And he didn't think I was going to get it, but they actually offered me the job. Uh, and so we left. My wife was still working at Proctor. Um, she did a remote job because she was doing really well in her career. And we ended up moving to Louisville there, thereafter. Uh, starting my career with PepsiCo at the time before it spun mm-hmm. off as Yum Brands. Yep, yep. And, and how long were you there? I was with Yum for 22 years, you know, Ooh. and I, I had like probably eight different jobs within Yum. Uh, <laughs> yep, <laughs> which, I think I remember every single one of them, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah you were, yep. it, was, it was really exciting. And, you know, I, I had offers to to jump and do things, but anytime that would happen, you know, the company, I would be honest with them, and they would say, well, wait a minute, we, we can have you do that here. Wait a minute, you know, we can offer you that compensation and take care of you that way. If, if, and so they really did, you know, David Novak, who was a leader, talked about people capability and creating people capability first and profitability and success mm-hmm. will follow. So it's all about the people. It's all about the people, and so you have to develop. And in order for you to get promoted, and his his philosophy was, if you're not bringing and developing people with you, then you you don't deserve to get promoted. Mm. So it was about coaching. I like and that. 
growing others. And so that was part of the requirement. And so I was able to, to coach and bring folks in from all over the world into the business. Uh, I had probably about 80 to 90 different mentees, and we did a lot of reverse mentoring. I learned as much from them sometimes as they learned from me <laughs> right. across the company. Went to Beijing. I was in the great, um, the great hall, you know, um, where you can't get in. You know, they, we actually had our business meetings there in, in Beijing um, because of being one of the first businesses to start up in in in, uh, in Shanghai and Beijing and in China. That that respect was there, uh, the number one brand actually in China at the time. So so I went all over the world from Abu Dhabi to Dubai before anybody was talking about Abu Dhabi and Dubai to Jakarta, Indonesia. You you name it. You know, I was a part of it, developing you know, a whole new platform, a business around sustainability and figuring out how to drive the business and how we design, build, operate, and maintain our facilities around the world in a more sustainable way um, and still be able to drive the performance that we need from a sales perspective as well. Yeah, you, you had an incredible career at Young Brand. And, and, and here's one thing that I want to do. Um, and I know you and I are going to have to talk after this, but you've um, started another chapter of your life business-wise. Um, and what I'd like to do is um, you and I are going to have a conversation away from this podcast, and I want to do a part two with you, if you don't mind, a part two podcast in which we talk about what you're doing now with with the business. Absolutely. Um, and I think what you're doing is important, and I think it deserves more time than what we have now. And it's going to tie back into um, what I've talked about with you, that transition from basketball to business and just how you bring everything full circle. So if you don't mind, we'll make that a part two podcast. Are you comfortable with that? I absolutely am. That would work okay. out. Appreciate it. Okay, great. So before we get into the end here, um, one of the last things I do on the podcast, I always like to do quick questions and quick answers with okay. all of our uh, guests. So you ready for this? Yes, I am. All right, quick questions, quick answers with Roger McClendon. Number one, during your time playing for the Bearcats, who was your favorite musical musical artist back then? Like, who would you listen to to get you pumped up for games? You know, uh, word up, you know, Cameo. Cameo was a jam. <laughs> word up. <laughs> With the hot top box, yeah, man. Yeah, man, he was, he had some outfits too. Before Prince, man, Cameo had the leather yeah, yeah. diapers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fishnet shirts, or whatever. Yeah, but that was that was the jam, huh? That would get you pumped oh, up. A little, a little bit of that, and if the guys were Public Enemy, would always get you in a in a big uh, mindset, you know. Man. Public Enemy was always a rocker too. Chuck D. Chuck D. Man had a serious. Yeah, yep. No, good good answer right there. Okay, number two. Um, what player in today's game would you say plays most like you did? Just for so so and Roger, I ask this because we have some young fans, um, Bearcat fans that are listening to this. They'll wanna know like what type of player was Roger McClendon. So if you could say there was one player now, even at the NBA level or, or college mm -hmm. that you think has the same type of game. You know, it, it, it's interesting because I, I was a slasher. It, I could shoot the basketball, but but if somebody came up on me, I could actually take it and slash and shoot from different positions. So, you know, I'm trying to think of that style of of player. Um, 
you know, I, I think I in the NBA I may have adjusted more to be more like a shooter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and you know, so I saw a Steve Kerr that you know Michael draws defense and kicks it, and you got a guaranteed bucket. So I probably would have transitioned more into that role. And mm-hmm. you know, today's players like that. I mean, Dale Curry himself was that type of player. You know, I think the difference between you know, uh, and maybe Seth is more like his dad than 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 really um, his his brother. Because Stefan can put the ball on the ground and can kind of move and create and do other things, where I think Seth and Dale are more of those guys catch and shoot guys. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. And so yep. I, I was a, I was between those guys. I was between. I could probably put it on the ground better than than a, than a Seth, but not as good as a Steph. So in between. Gotcha. Okay. Good answer. All right. Um, question number three. During your time as a Bearcat. If you were going to battle and you had to take one teammate to battle with you, what one teammate would you take? I'm taking Romel Shorter every day of the week. All oh, five, all, five three, all five three of them. All five three, <laughs> five four of them. Because he got the heart of a lion, you know Damn. what I mean, and the killer killer of a gangster, you know. So, yeah, just, uh, yeah. No, no, no hesitation on that question. Oh, Road Dog, man. That's another guy I need to get on the podcast. Yeah, you got to definitely get him on. Yeah, he's like a, a guy that no one ever talks about. I think to I think to this day he's still the shortest player to ever play for the Bearcats. Yeah. Um I don't I don't think anybody's been that small, um, with that much heart. Yeah, man, great great answer. You know I, I love me some Romel Shorter. He was one of my he was one of my coaches when I went to Tony Yates' basketball camp. <laughs> and I think I was taller than him. <laughs> I'm like, I'm calling it a damn coach, the, the guy who's running point for <laughs> Okay, number four. Now, my last question, this is a tough one because just listening to everything you talked about, Roger, you have so many talents just beyond sports. But if, if you could tell us one talent you have that would surprise the listeners, what talent – is that That's, okay? So I have a talent of convening and bringing people together. I, I really do. I have a talent of, you know, creating something that doesn't exist. You know, kind of taking an idea and making it a reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you know sometimes people can see the outward talent. You know, you you can run fast, you're gifted, or you can shoot a basketball. But being able to problem solve in those situations and bring something to life, an idea to create to, to, to reality, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a special talent. And, it, and you have to convene people and convince people and have them believe in your idea to be able to do it. So I think that's the kind of an inner, inner gift that I have. Wow. Totally. Um, listen, I, I've loved this entire podcast. Um, and you and I talked before we did this, and I said, you know, one thing that I want to make sure – that the Bearcat fans hear, and that is not only Roger's greatness on the court, but his greatness off the court after he finished playing. And I think you are truly the blueprint um, for, from a Bearcat standpoint, they need to use you as the blueprint for the transition from basketball to business and and life and family, man. Um, and, And I wish, you know, maybe the Bearcats could have some sort of platform to, help the, the current student athletes and have guys like you talk about that in that transition, because it's not like 
like I can get up there and talk in front of the student athletes about transition from basketball to business. And some of the guys can go, Hey, that's great. But you didn't have a chance to go pro. You weren't the best player on the team. Now you have a Roger McClendon who McDonald's all American offers from everyone in the country, best player on the Bearcats team. Now he's talking about transition from basketball to business. Man, I think that will be so powerful. Uh, I, I appreciate it, and, and, and I know you're a humble guy, you know, and, and I always brag about you from being able to create, you know, through your walk-on experience, a real experience that's legitimate and, and a pathway for people that don't have, you know, the McDonald's All-American offers but still make it work and still make it be be significant. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely, I definitely think there's a lot that we can share together, and I love your trajectory right now and what Thank you're doing. You. So keep it do keep doing it, man. You're great at it. I, no, I really appreciate that. So I've got you locked in. We're gonna do a part two. Yeah. Okay. And we're gonna talk offline, and we're gonna talk about. Um, I, and I want to get a better feel for everything you're trying to do with this, so we can present it. I think in a great way. Next podcast. Does that Perfect. sound good? Yeah, yeah. When you, I know how busy you are. If you want, when you prepare, go to greensportsalliance.org. It'll okay. give you the framework. It's a, it's a it's an organization that's ten years old, started by Paul Allen and some others, and so you'll really get a good feel <clears throat> of our membership base and kind of what it, the core of it is, and then I can expound on where what we've done, what we're doing now, and where we're going. Yep. And I watched um, you've got a video on YouTube, um, and you talk a little bit about some things, and <clears throat> I watched that and, and very intrigued. I think it's going to be a uh, something great for people to hear. So I definitely want to do that. But but first off, thank you again. I know you're busy. It's actually Easter today. This is going to air, you know, next week sometime, but it's Easter today. You're busy with your family. I know we're all locked in, but you took the time, man, to, to really share your story. And, and trust me, Bearcat fans are going to love this. That's a privilege. It really it is because it, it has a meaning. And, you know, anything – you know, you're my man, man. You're my man. So, <laughs> my God, I get. You know what I need to get? I got to get a Roger McClendon throwback jersey. That's what I need. Oh, I'm, gonna, number, I'm gonna get one. Of, huh? Number twenty-one, man. Roberto Clemente. You know, that's it. Is that where you got it from? That's where you got yeah, it from. Yeah, Roberto. Man. Roberto Clemente, my favorite player, baseball. That's my, that my dad's favorite player. My yeah. dad always says that's his favorite player. Um, Absolutely. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, man, I got to get a Roger McClendon throwback jersey. I'm gonna wear it to the to the Bearcats game next year. I <laughs> <laughs> give him a little magic. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Though no, for sure, for well, sure. Well, let's well, definitely let's do it. And then you know, Romel is your man, man. He he's his story is unbelievable. Yeah, his story is unbelievable because what he came through versus what I came through. We, that's why we're brothers. We both face yep. adversity like that, but. His is is so tragic, tragic and unbelievable. To, you know, like you can't believe, you really can't believe what he went through and what happened uh, in his yeah. life. Um, and he survived it, and he's a leader. And that that's an unsung kind of person that yeah, that's a great point. Years. Like when he was when he was seventeen, eighteen, when we were down on campus. I mean, he had wisdom beyond his years. Literally, yeah. literally. That's that's a great point. I, I've got his number. Um, and I'm definitely going to reach out to him. If you get a chance, talk to him a little bit and tell him you did it and, and tell him I'm going to be reaching out. So, Perfect. hey, I'm going to I'm going to call you back. I'm going to call okay. you and give you a shout. We can talk offline, but I, I want to thank you once again for, for being on the Bearcat Basketball Podcast, Roger. 
My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Alex. And then All right, next time, Take care. All right, sounds good. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. I want to thank everybody for listening to our special episode, our interview series of the Bearcat Basketball Podcast. And once again, you can follow me on social media, on Twitter and Instagram, at Alex underscore Meacham. Meacham spelled M-E-A-C-H-A-M. Also on Facebook and LinkedIn, Alex Meacham. On Snapchat, at BigMeach41. And soon to be on TikTok. I appreciate everybody listening to the Bearcat Basketball Podcast. Go Bearcats.